Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Father, as we hear the words of Jesus, we pray that you would open our ears and let us hear them, that you would open our eyes and let us see the truth that Jesus proclaims. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. There is an elephant in the room or maybe to be more precise, an elephant in the text. And it's this idea that we find at the end of our text of an unpardonable or unforgivable sin. And if we don't talk about that first, I'm not sure you'll be able to hear anything else that we say, because you'll be waiting to hear what is this unforgivable sin? What is this unpardonable sin? And have I accidentally committed it? So to put your mind at rest, let's talk about that first. We'll go to the end of our text, we'll think about that, and then we're going to work our way backwards as we go. Because as important as this is, what Jesus has to say about this sin that will not be forgiven, the rest of what he says is even more important, and we do need to hear it. So, first things first, what is Jesus talking about? What is this unpardonable or unforgivable sin, and could we accidentally find ourselves guilty of committing it? 
Uh, first of all, I want to draw your attention to the words of Jesus when he describes this. He doesn't use the term unpardonable. He doesn't use the term unforgivable. Instead, he says this is a sin that will not be forgiven, not that cannot be forgiven. It may seem like a minor point, but I think it's important to emphasize that Jesus isn't talking about a constraint on the power of God. He's not telling us there's one sin God has no power to forgive. So when you hear what Jesus is saying, don't imagine that that it, it could be the case that God desperately wants to forgive a person, but because that person has committed this unforgivable sin, perhaps without even realizing it, God's hands are tied and he can't give the forgiveness that he wants to give. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about something that that you can't do in ignorance, something that's done deliberately, something that is willful, a knowing rebellion. Not that God cannot forgive because he is unable, but that he will not forgive because he has drawn a line, as it were, in the sand beyond which we cannot go and expect forgiveness. It's not that God is powerless. It's that salvation is impossible on the other side of this line. So, what does it mean to blaspheme or speak against the Holy Spirit? Because that's the sin. To blaspheme the Spirit, to speak against the Spirit. What does Jesus mean? Well, it seems he's talking here about something more than just a thought or even a belief. This is a speaking sin. This is a sin of declaration. To speak against is to take a position against. I said earlier, a, a sin of rebellion, like to actively object to the Holy Spirit's work. It's not speaking against a human truth or a human interpretation that Jesus is referring to here. It's not speaking against such things in ignorance. Rather, it's speaking against divine truth with knowledge. The Spirit does certain work in Scripture. It is the Spirit who reveals the truth of Jesus' identity as the Messiah. The Spirit proclaims that He is the Son of God, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is all what the Holy Spirit is doing to speak against that divine truth, to speak against that divine work of revelation, to take a stand against God, to reject His plan, to dismiss it as evil and not good. That will not be forgiven. How could it be? There is only one path to forgiveness, which is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you reject that sacrifice, if you reject that cross, if you revolt against it, if you dismiss it as an evil and ugly thing, not a truth, but a lie, there is no sacrifice for sin left. There is no salvation possible once we've turned our back on Christ. The Pharisees in this text are doing something that brings them dangerously close to that line. They're speaking against the Son of Man. They're speaking against what we might say Jesus in the flesh. But as bad as that is, you could argue that maybe they're doing it in ignorance. Maybe they don't realize what they're doing. They don't see who he truly is. 
And the Bible does make a distinction between sins of ignorance and sins of knowledge. But consider where they're at. The evidence is unrolling before their eyes. Here, it comes from the lips of the prophet Isaiah. They are rejecting the work of Christ as the truth of his identity is being revealed. Not only are they rejecting it, though, they're declaring it satanic. They're saying that what's happening here is not of God, it's of the devil, which brings them dangerously close to something unforgivable. Knowing that he is the Messiah, they plot against him anyway. They denounce him anyway. And so Jesus warns them not to do this, to be careful. Now, on the one hand, those of you who read this love Jesus, but are just worried that, that maybe I've accidentally done this thing. Maybe I've, I've thought the wrong thing or said the wrong thing. In a moment of doubt or anger, perhaps I've accidentally blasphemed the Holy Spirit and therefore I'm unforgivable. Be assured, Jesus isn't talking about some slip of the tongue. He's not talking about some momentary weakness. He's talking about the kind of opposition that even the Pharisees haven't quite gotten to at this point. So you can rest assured that you're not in danger of committing this sin. On the other hand, this warning should sober us so that as we see the reality of who Jesus is being unveiled before our very eyes, we don't take it lightly, we don't easily dismiss it. Because what we're being shown is the only way to communion with God. What we're being shown is the only way to have our sins forgiven. You cannot experience that truth, the truth of Christ, and then turn against Him, walk away from Him, and expect anything but judgment. If you want to hear more about that, today's episode of The Big Question will answer this question again so you can think more about the unpardonable sin. But for now, we're going to pause and consider what else Jesus says here. Because as I say, as sobering as the warning is, it's not actually the most urgent thing that Jesus communicates. And I want you to see the heart of the message that Jesus is proclaiming. Because what he's talking about here isn't just an unpardonable sin. He's talking about the presence of the kingdom. And the presence of the kingdom means the curbing of Satan's power. They accuse Jesus of doing what he's doing with satanic strength. That his power is coming from the devil. Sure, he can cast out demons, but that's because he's in league with the prince of the demons. Of course he has power over them because he's working with their boss. That's the idea. And Jesus, in responding to it, illustrates the absurdity of what they're saying. If it was true that King Jesus was casting out demons by the power of King Satan, then wouldn't King Satan's kingdom be divided? Wouldn't it crumble? Wouldn't it be destroying itself? It's absurd. It's also not the most obvious interpretation of what's going on. If the Pharisees were being honest, the natural conclusion would be to assume that whoever is destroying Satan's realm must be the enemy of Satan. That whoever is taking apart the realm of Satan, the kingdom of Satan, must be an opposing king. 
not one who is in league with him, not his friend. There are other people known to the Pharisees, their own sons, Jesus says, who see the problem of of demon possession and attempt to exercise demons. Are they saying that everybody who does that is somehow in league with the devil? That's crazy. Wouldn't it make more sense if they were to say that Jesus drives out demons by the power of God? Isn't that the obvious conclusion to draw? Of course it is. That's the conclusion the people are coming to as they witness the signs. Why don't the Pharisees make this obvious conclusion? Well, I think the Pharisees refuse to make it refuse to join the people in asking, can this be the son of David? Because to admit that would be to admit the presence of the kingdom. If they admit that this guy is doing the things we were told the Messiah would do, then that means he is the Messiah. That means the kingdom is here, and that puts us on notice that we must repent and turn to him. The prophet Isaiah declares it. The people here are witnessing it and they are receiving it. And yet the Pharisees are not just fighting the truth, but they're calling it evil. That's why Jesus cautions them. He does more than caution them. He illustrates that there is a line. There there is a, what we might say, an antithesis. And you're on one side of it or on the other. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no third place to stand. There is no other option in this scenario. The king has come. The kingdom is here. Either you enter into the kingdom and you reap alongside the king, or you resist the kingdom, and instead of harvesting, you scatter. But no one is on the sidelines. No one is is refusing to take part. There is no neutrality In this scenario, Jesus declares that they're either in the kingdom or they're outside the kingdom, either accepting it or rebelling against it. And he calls to us and says, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is upon you. Come into the kingdom. Join me here. He makes a second point, and this one would be easy to miss because it comes to us in the form of of a metaphor. Jesus says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And you think, oh, a parable, an illustration. Jesus is always giving us little stories like that to think about. But have you ever asked yourself what it is Jesus is talking about here? Like, who are the people in this analogy? Who is the strong man? Who has bound this strong man? What is the plundering that Jesus is talking about? Well, in the context here, it's kind of obvious that the strong man is Satan. Satan is the strong man. Jesus is the one who has bound him. And if you're reading Matthew's gospel, that begins to make a kind of sense. Because ever since Matthew 4, in the wilderness temptation, it seemed like Satan is on the run that his minions can never stand up to Jesus. It's like they surrender before Jesus even fights. It's like some victory is being won. We've seen it with the Pharisees as well. They come against Jesus 
they invariably lose. Something has happened. There's been a shift in the balance of power. Jesus explains it here. Every soul that is being saved, every life that is being made whole is plunder, is seized, is taken from Satan's kingdom, from his dominion. Jesus is saying, how could I do the things that I'm doing? How could I take from Satan what I'm taking from him before his very eyes, under his very nose, unless I had first bound him? Unless I had first rendered him powerless to resist what I'm doing to him? That's the point of the analogy. Not only is the kingdom here, but because the kingdom is here, Satan's power has been curtailed. It has been curbed. He doesn't run rampant. He doesn't rule over this reality as he once did. The Pharisees don't see this. When they look at Jesus, they don't see a victor. They don't see someone who has has won again and again and again because appearances are deceiving and they're judging things by the surface. They're judging based on what they see and they hear, but they're not judging based on what's happening, what Jesus is accomplishing. The Pharisees don't see the strength of Jesus because Jesus comes in weakness, because he's packaged in meekness. It's interesting that when they're faced with his power and they have to explain it, when they have to account for how it is that this weak and gentle guy is able to do these powerful things, they attribute that power to Satan. It makes you wonder like, where their idea of strength comes from. That when they see it in action, they think, oh, this must be from the devil. How else could we explain such power. A lot of self-righteous people have the same view of strength as the Pharisees. A lot of us, when we look for strength in the world around us, judge the way that they judge. What makes a person strong? A strong man uses his power to get what he wants. A strong man crushes his enemies. A strong man has no patience for pointless opposition. He knows he's right. He has the power to make sure that his right opinion triumphs. And so he uses it to do what he knows is right. People who have the power to do what they believe is right and still bear patiently with those who don't agree, who bear patiently with others, those people seem weak. They're weak. Why wouldn't they just use the power that they have? Why wouldn't they just correct? Why wouldn't they just compel? Because they're weak. In our terms, you could imagine the Pharisees looking at Jesus and saying, this guy can't be the Savior. He's he's a beta male. Only an alpha could save us. And they have no clue the nature of the man that they're talking about. They have no clue that he is the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end, because they don't have a category for power wielded the way that Jesus wields it. No category for a God-man, for the anointed one who doesn't wield Satan's power and doesn't wield power the way Satan would. There's some lessons for us here as we consider 
this misunderstanding of strength. First of all, don't wait for the coming of the kingdom and the binding of Satan. If you're holding on and you're just hoping that one day the kingdom will be here, that one day Satan's power will be curtailed, that he will be bound, you can stop waiting because Jesus has done that already. He says he's done it here. He doesn't make it ambiguous. It's clear in what Jesus says that the balance of power has shifted and there's no suspense or drama about who is going to win. The kingdom is here. Jesus' work signifies that this is happening. Paul in Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Not that he will, but that he has done this already. A lot of us are waiting for Jesus to do things that he's done long ago. We're only waiting because we don't realize. We haven't paid attention to what he said or because we haven't seen the effects of his victory fully worked out. So you can stop waiting, at least for that. In this period of longing and waiting, the thing we're not waiting for is for his kingdom to come. It has come. We are waiting for it to come in fullness, but that kingdom has been inaugurated and we have been welcomed into it. Another thing, don't worship satanic strength. When you look for strength in the world around you, when you look for strength in leaders, don't look for the kind of strength that Satan exemplifies. If your idea of a leader, of a hero, looks more like Satan than like Jesus, then you don't know what real strength is. You haven't learned from Jesus' example. If we cry out for kings who exploit us, if we cry out for shepherds who dominate us, we have an idol in our lives, an idol of satanic strength, not godly strength, and idols need to be destroyed. Jesus, through his life, shows us what real power looks like, what what real strength looks like. But if you're not going to learn from the example of Jesus, then learn from the words of Isaiah. Because here, Isaiah 42 gives us what we might think of as a messianic template. This prophecy of Isaiah that Matthew quotes in another one of his fulfillment formulas is intended to show us that Jesus fits the pattern. If you're looking for the Messiah you'll recognize him because he's going to check off these boxes. So if you look at the prophecy of Isaiah, you will see the kind of king that we need. So don't miss Jesus because you're waiting for the wrong kind of king. Learn from Isaiah the kind of king we need. So this template that Isaiah gives is fascinating. It it addresses a lot of things. We're not going to get into each of the things, but there are a couple of things that I want you to see here. One of them has to do with what you might think of as sequence or the order in which things are meant to happen. So Isaiah speaks to the order of what we might call the proclamation and then the victory. Like what order are those going to come in? Now, most kings, if they are going to take a throne— if there is some usurper, some false king who, who needs to be toppled, the way the king does it is he declares his kingship. He says, I am the true king. 
And then he rallies his troops. He forms an army of people who are willing to follow him. And then he marches and he defeats the false king in battle. That's the way it usually works. But Isaiah says that when it comes to the Messiah, that's not the way it's going to work. That he's not going to do things the way an ordinary king would. In fact, it's going to seem a little bit backwards. He says he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. So he proclaims justice, then achieves it through victory, but before that, he doesn't raise his voice in the streets. He doesn't cry aloud. He doesn't quarrel. In other words, he wins the victory before his enemies realize he's begun the fight. And by the time they do, they've been defeated. Matthew calls our attention to this messianic template to explain a little bit of a mystery that we've referred to before in the works of Jesus. Jesus heals people, and then he says, don't tell anybody about this. Jesus does these incredible things that should be making the headlines. And then he tells people, you know what? Don't spread the word. Don't, don't broadcast what's going on. Which is strange when you think about it. It's strange in the sense that if we did anything even close to what Jesus did, we want everybody to know about it. We would be the ones spreading the word. Why does Jesus conceal? Why does Jesus not declare himself openly? Because he's the Messiah. Because this is how Isaiah said we would recognize him. That this is exactly the way he would be. That first he would win, and then he would declare himself. The clear proclamation of Jesus' kingdom will come, not before the victory of the cross, but after the glory of the resurrection, on Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out. The same spirit the Pharisees are warned not to speak against. The fact that the life of Jesus conforms to this pattern is part of the proof that Jesus is the king that was promised, that he is the one that they're waiting on. He is the chosen one that Isaiah prophesied about. So throughout Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus doing exactly this, avoiding notoriety, making people whole, but not making a big deal out of it, and letting his enemies come to him, letting them defeat themselves, as it were, in wave after wave of futile and fruitless attacks. From the wilderness temptation all the way forward, again and again, Jesus wins victories. Jesus goes undefeated because he is the king. You say, well, yeah, but this is just Matthew 12, right? We all know what's going to happen. He's winning so far for now, but in the end, they're going to get him. In the end, they'll get him. He'll go to the cross. His enemies will put him to death. They actually know they don't. In the end, they don't get him. Nobody gets Jesus. The cross isn't a defeat of Jesus. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He lays it down. And in laying it down, achieves the greatest victory of all, the victory over death itself. 
so that once he's won this victory, he can declare himself openly. The battle has already been won. And the enemy's defeated thought that they were winning over him when he actually triumphed over them. Just like Isaiah said, Isaiah says, the Messiah's path to victory will be one of gentleness. Not because he's weak and powerless, not because he's not able to assert himself, but because his enemies cannot be defeated on their own terms or with their own weapons. Because the force that overcomes evil isn't evil, it's good. And so he wields goodness against them, as it were, and goodness triumphs because goodness is strength. Goodness is strength. And that goodness of Jesus is is manifested in the way he treats the weak. This is the last thing I want you to think about. The last thing I want you to try to learn from the example of Jesus. The strength of Jesus as king is illustrated not only in his power to make the weak whole, but also in the way that he treats the weak, the mercy, the kindness, the consideration that he shows. So Isaiah says he's not quarrelsome, he's not loud, he's not an arguer, he's not an accuser. He doesn't rally his faction and take to the streets. He doesn't exploit the weakness of others. He restores it. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. The other kind of strength, the satanic strength, it has contempt for the weak. That kind of strength has contempt for weakness. Even in the church, we see this. Even in the church, we see there are people who cannot see weakness in others without lashing out at it. People who cannot see a bruised person without reaching out and breaking them. Why? What's so threatening about weakness? I think our rush to break the weak, our rush to snap the bruised reed, stems from a deep insecurity, not from strength. From a weakness of our own. We cannot bear the weakness of others because we're afraid it will spread. We're afraid that if if you're weak, then, then, then I'll become weak. If I put up with your weakness, then maybe it reveals my own weakness. But Jesus bears with the weak. Not because he is weak, but because he's not. He has no fear, no anxiety that weakness will spread. So he can show the weak mercy because he has the power to overcome weakness. And that is real strength. And that explains how he can bear with people who are against him. How he can say to the Pharisees, not be gone with you, be destroyed, be crushed, but hey, watch out, don't go too far. People who are plotting to take his life, and he knows that they are, because Matthew says he knows their thoughts. And yet he warns them, don't go too far. He warns them to turn to repent. He warns them who he is, because he bears with weakness, because he possesses true strength. 
If you're struggling to bear with the weakness that you see all around you, the reality is it's your own weakness that you're fighting. But you'll never conquer it by trying to channel that satanic idea of strength. You'll never defeat weakness by destroying it in others or in yourself. The only way to overcome your insecurity is to find your strength somewhere else. It's to find it in Jesus Christ. As Paul charges us at the end of the book of Ephesians, finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.